Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Amir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And of course, we do also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable for the second hour of today's show. Our sponsors are uh, Timmons Gold, Bravada Gold Corp., uh, Golden Arrow Resources, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold, Sand Gold Corp., and Uranium Energy Corp. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me back, uh, back with me again, Ellen Brown. And Ellen has been with us uh, several times in this show, so I'm not, well, we just have an awful lot to talk to her about, so I'm not going to read her bio. You can uh, catch her bio up on our, uh, on our, on our page at the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, she is a lawyer, I'll just tell you that, and she's written a fantastic book, I think a very insightful book in terms of what has led up to the problems we have in today's banking system uh, in her book called Web of Debt. Welcome, Ellen. Good. Thanks, Jay. Really good to have you back again. Uh, there are two things I'd like to talk to you about primarily today. Uh, the first is uh, re- related, well, they're both related to your article that you just wrote, Bailout is Out, Bail-In is In, Time for Some Publicly Owned Banks. So that kind of, both of those are what I'd like to talk to you about, a publicly owned bank that I've been watching uh, and looking at a little bit thanks to your uh, to the insights that you passed on is the Bank of North Dakota, and I want to get into that. But first, before we start talking about that, uh, I, I just like to read the quote that you that you uh, started your essay on uh, from Eric Sprott. He says, uh, "With Cyprus, the game itself changed by raiding the depositors' accounts. A major central bank has gone where they would not previously have dared. The Rubicon has been crossed." End of quote. Well. He's talking about the bail-ins now, but tell our listeners, just so we're sure everybody understands what's going on here, um, what is the difference between a bailout and a bail-in? A bailout is where failed, too-big-to-fail banks are funded, or the bailout is fail, uh, funded by the taxpayers. 
mm-hmm. and a bail-in is where the taxpayers either can't or won't bail out the banks anymore. For example, Iceland refused to bail out their banks. Our um, Dodd-Frank Act says that we will no longer be responsible for a big derivatives bust. They didn't. It doesn't say that like Bank of America and J.P. Morgan can't commingle their funds and they can't uh, do derivatives. It just says we're not going to bail you out if you get in trouble with them. So mm-hmm. that means that the government won't do it. Then the there are now bail-in plans all over the world coming emanating from the Bank for International Settlements a couple of years ago, the original um, um, blueprint, that um, they would then go after their creditors' money. Mm-hmm. And of course, the largest the largest class of creditors of a bank are the depositors. Mm-hmm. So that means basically that they're pooling all their monies and just saying, um, you know, it's now been authorized that we should take these monies, or that that uh, in bankruptcy, that what you get back will be stock instead of your money. So your, wow. your stock is turned to equity in order to cap- recapitalize the banks. Oh, that's a really great deal, isn't it? You get stock in a bankrupt <laughs> bank. <laughs> How wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, Ellen, I think you, you explained the last time we had you on that, in fact, um, in fact, when you put your money in a bank, it's no longer your property. It becomes the property of the bank. Is that right? Correct. And that's been true for at least a century. So, it's, you know, it's pretty hard to dispute now. I mean, there's legal authority for it. Mm-hmm. Why would why should we do that? I mean, there's been no reason. I, I guess in the past we've 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 not had many problems, and when we have, we've had FDIC uh, FDIC rescue uh, insurance that have ta- has taken care of it. Uh, but if that is really the situation, I guess people aren't worried, or else they would be running to the banks to pull money out right now. Yeah. Well, first of all, they don't know that that's the situation. Mm-hmm. It certainly was a problem all through the 19th century before they had. FDIC insurance. Every few years, like every decade or so, there'd be a big bank or big banking crisis and bank runs, and everybody would rush to the bank and try and get out their money. And if you didn't get there on time, there was nothing. There was nothing there. Mm-hmm. And then, so so the FDIC or the Federal Reserve was set up in 1913, supposedly to backstop all that, but it didn't work. Twenty years <laughs> later, we had the biggest bank run in history with the with the crash of 1929. So it wasn't until they put in FDIC insurance in 1934 that people actually felt secure with their banks. But the insurance is not the banks. I mean, the banks are saying, we're out. You you, you get the insurance from, well, theoretically it's backstopped by the government, but all those premiums, I mean, the money in the pool, the fund, actually comes from all the banks that are members of the FDIC have to kick in have to mm-hmm. take in money. Mm-hmm. Has that, uh, since Lehman Brothers, I, I would presume that that insurance uh, premium that they have, that the banks have to pay has gone up uh, considerably? Right. Well, Lehman Brothers was not a depository bank, so that didn't right. necessarily kill the fund. But then there, there have been all sorts of bank busts since then. A lot of little banks have gone bankrupt. And so, yeah, the fund was... Eight billion in the hole in uh, I think t- 2009. So then all the all the members had to they did a special assessment to to make up the eight billion, and that was that alone was it was taking like 
half the profits of the small banks, and they were complaining bitterly about it, that they were this... They were the honest, prudent banks, and here they were mm-hmm. having to bail out the the dishonest, corrupt banks. So you can and just see that they're not going to be able to afford to bail out J.P. Morgan or um, Bank of America when they have a trillion dollar, you know, when they have a huge derivatives collapse. They've got like seventy five trillion and seventy nine trillion, respectively, of uh, of derivatives. That notional value, but. It's clearly at least over a trillion in real value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay, let's get back to this idea that um, that it's not a one-off thing. You, t- you say in your article that, okay, it happened in Cyprus, uh, and I think there was some talk immediately afterwards from maybe a Dutch official and someone else uh, saying that this, has, that this was the boilerplate that was going to be used throughout the Western world, and then they backtracked. Uh, um, where does this stand now? I mean, in, in your view, in reading your article, this is not a one-off thing. And if it's not a one-off thing, what other countries might be vulnerable? Well, the the, the bail-in plans that we know of, there there is the the BIC uh, BIS mm-hmm. issued this directive saying that countries needed these bail-in plans. Of course, the G that's the G20 Financial Stability Board, so that's twenty countries right there, and they were all mm-hmm. supposed to come up with these. Plans and all the banks, like in the U.S., they've made. I saw the plan for J.P. Morgan, and it was it was very very similar to those the bail-in directive about how that they will go after the creditors, that mm. unsecured creditors, which means basically the depositors. Mm. Um, but the 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 actual directives that I've seen are like. New Zealand has one where they don't even have insurance in New Zealand. So they clearly say, I mean, they say in no uncertain terms that they're going to go after the depositor's money and they don't make any distinction between um, insured and uninsured because they don't have any insured. And then Canada has it in their um, in their new budget that that's, that's what they'll do. Rather, I mean, it's like they're, they're bold, bra- sort of proudly saying that not to worry taxpayers, we're not going to go after the taxpayers' mm. money for if there's a big bank bust again. This time, the banks will have to deal with it themselves, and they're going to do it with these bail-in, bail-in policies. And then we have the FDIC Bank of England directive that came down in 2012, and in Europe, they're putting one together, apparently, the EU is. Well, it seems to me, Ellen, that either that it must be that the people don't know that they don't understand, they're ignorant about what you're writing about here, <clears throat> or uh, <clears throat> they don't know about it, uh, or they don't believe that there is a problem with the financial system, or they're just aloof to it all. Otherwise, why would any any rational person, if you believe this, why would any rational person keep any amount of money in the bank other than other than what you have to have for transactional purposes. Well, one problem is where else are you going to put it? If you put it in a, the stock market, let's say, any money that's between trades that, that's sitting there in the money market, they put that stuff in um, overnight sweeps in the two-big-to-fail <laughs> banks, in the Wall Street <laughs> banks. So if, if, if it goes to Chase and Chase goes bankrupt over a weekend, you, you still lose your money. If you put it into, let's say, gold and silver, I saw recently where the banks are refusing to give you back your gold and silver. They just give you an IOU for it, which is, you know, an IOU in dollars. I, I forget who that was, somebody in 
Europe, I think. Did that. Yeah, there was, I think, Union Bank of Switzerland, UBS, perhaps, or, or one of, maybe it was a Dutch bank, that there, there was a failure to deliver, I know. But, but right. go ahead. So, so you've got an IOU just like you would have an IOU against the bank for your dollars. Um, so, so your choices are pretty, and if you put it in a safety deposit box in your bank, put your gold and silver, um, those are subject to confiscation in the event of a major um, national security event. Well, you can imagine that a big bank bust is going to be called a national security threat. Sure, sure. <clears throat> so there's really not much of any place to go. Um, so that brings me, and I, I, there's so many other questions I wanted to ask you, though, about about the situation that we find ourselves in, and we'll we'll leave towards the end of our discussion what your suggestions are, what should people do right now. But uh, you, you mentioned in your essay that there is a series of events that are likely responsible for this sort of grant policy that I like to call grand larceny, larceny against the citizens. What are some of the triggers that you think may have caused this new this policy to be enacted? Well, I think because it, it became obvious that governments were not going to bail out their banks anymore. I mean, even that Dutch finance minister who said that Cyprus was going to be the, uh, the template, he said, we are not going to use the European stability mechanism. Well, that was that agreement where in the middle of the night, right before they signed the agreement, the banks pushed through this thing where they would bail out not just the other EU governments. So all the Eurozone governments are responsible for bailing out the other governments, but they're also responsible for bailing out their banks. Well, that, like, take your German public banks that are very, the, the little local public banks that are very prudent. They've got their own money. They've built up their own insurance um, over years and years. And now they're going to be responsible for bailing out banks in the South that have gotten into serious trouble. So, of course, they're protesting against that. So mm-hmm. it's getting pretty obvious to the banks, I think, probably, that um, that they're not going to be able to rely on government anymore. And so they're making this a formal policy so nobody can scream when they take the depositor's money. They'll say, well, that's what they told us to do, so that's what we're doing. Well, you had mentioned some things like, I think, Iceland and some other events that have taken place that, that have really caused people to, um, I think, maybe some of the derivative issues. Well, I, I don't know. There were several issues in your essay, I don't recall, uh, the, the, the several events that have taken place that you thought was a trigger point yeah, for well, this policy. Well, one was, yeah, Bank of America um, moved their Merrill Lynch derivatives into their depository arm <laughs> when... When they were downgraded, Moody's downgraded the Merrill Lynch branch, and and the um, the so there was the this demand by the derivatives claimants for more collateral because they started worrying about the solvency of the Merrill Lynch derivatives, and so they moved it over into the depository arm where there are is one trillion in deposits. So and like Bill Black said, it was. Criminal, and he said any honest regulator would have said no, hell no. That um, it was clear evidence. It was the Fed that supported it, and the FDIC said you're going to bankrupt, or you know you'll will be insolvent if you go bankrupt. So they protested loudly, but the thing went through because the Fed said we needed to help out Bank of America. So so there's something very risky going on, and everybody can see it. Or, you yeah, know, they, I mean, I think they're preparing for it. 
Um, yeah, the, the, the incredible size of it. I mean, this is a, a Glass-Steagall issue, isn't it? I mean, this, is, this would have been impossible to do uh, if Glass-Steagall hadn't been taken away, right? Right. They, they should go back to Glass-Steagall. They should get rid of that super priority thing. That, that, the major problem there is that in bankruptcy, the derivatives claims go first. So they're going to rush to the to get their money. That's what actually happened in Lehman Brothers. You, the, because the derivatives had super priority, they, it was like a run of the derivatives. All the derivatives claimants ran, rushed to get their money, and then Lehman, Lehman Brothers was bankrupt, of course, because they'd all demanded more collateral, and they'd taken their collateral. Hmm. So you have to get, get rid to, of that, it seems to me. So that the derivatives get first in line. Yeah, and so they're first in line also in front of the public funds, like all our state and local government monies are there in Wall Street, and the derivatives are going to go before them as well. They're the secured there was, creditors, but secured with the same same security. There was a the bank act or bank law that was put in place. I think Hillary Clinton was very strongly supportive of it. Uh, the New York bankers is, uh, I think, 2005 or 2000, was it 2005, that paved the way for this to happen, for derivatives to to uh, get first in line? Well, that was was in the 2005 bankruptcy law, yeah, among yeah. other things, like the fact that students couldn't declare bankruptcy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was a totally onerous twisting of what bankruptcy should be. Bankruptcy should be your ability to get out of your... To honestly get out, you know, if you honestly deserve the relief, but they've made it so little people aren't getting any relief from bankruptcy, and the big corrupt banks are getting way more relief than they should, the derivatives players. And we're seeing, of course, uh, I think student loans are something like a trillion dollars or something now. It's just it's just incredible. and. Um, there, you know, kids feel like they have to go to college and uh, and, and get a degree, and uh, parents are going into debt, leveraging their homes or what's left of them. It's it's really a very sad, a very sad situation. Well, why? Explain to us maybe again, just so people can, so I can understand and my listeners can understand, why cannot FDIC bail us out? Cannot FD, FDIC certainly would have the U.S. printing press available to it, would it not? Well, Ben Bernanke said he was not allowed to print the money for a bailout. And I think that's because of the Dodd-Frank thing that just says that the government is not going to bail out, bail them out from a big derivatives collapse. And um, FDIC only has $25 billion in it right now. Of course, they, Sheila Baer said a couple of years ago that not to worry that they had this big credit line with the government, with the Treasury, but that mm-hmm. was before the Dodd-Frank rule, 716, I think, that said um, that they couldn't, that the government would not bail out that type of a derivatives uh, fiasco. So it looks to me like they can't use their credit line, but even if they did use the credit line, supposedly it's only a temporary credit line that's paid back by by the FDIC members. And, and you, how can you impose... Well, it was like the the last collapse was seven hundred billion dollars, right? That the government coughed up. I mean, you can't impose that on the banks; they just don't have it. I mean, it'll cripple all the other little banks. Well, I'm wondering if the powers that be care about crippling the other little banks. Well, that's true, but it just seems to me that 
the FDIC insurance is, I would assume the FDIC is going to say, we don't have it and the Treasury is not going to give it to us. So, Well, um, so... So the FDIC can actually go bankrupt then essentially can be can it looks like it will be allowed to go bankrupt I if we if we have I this sort of dire situation where uh, right. you know you start to have derivatives defaults and so forth right or you could call it bankruptcy or they could just say well that's outside of um, our mandate because because of the Dodd Frank Act. I mean, yeah. you may still have an FDIC. They'll just say that we did we did all we were allowed to do legally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Bankruptcy Reform Act. Uh, I believe Senator Clinton was a big supporter of that at the time, um, and um, the, I think all of the the New York interests, of course, no doubt, um, the banking industry being so strong here uh, in in New York City. Um, can you give us a sense, just give us a sense then, I think maybe you have, but if you could just reiterate the size of this derivative issue. I mean, it's, you said trillions. I think the, the notional value was something like over $100 trillion or something like that between the two well, major derivative banks. Between that, in the U.S., it, I'm, it's over $200 trillion for wow. the U.S. banks. So, And that's only like a handful of banks that have virtually all of them. But the two biggest, have 79 and 75 trillion respectively which is more than the GDP of the world but that's notional value but then I did see one figure that if you took all the the real you netted out all the claims and you what mm-hmm. you would have left over is 12 trillion so the real liability or exposure of US banks is 12 trillion 12 trillion dollars well, but so if those are the two biggest they they've got to be at least got to be at least a couple trillion each for them i would think these are numbers that are so big ellen that it's just impossible for most people to comprehend including yours truly um but let's let's just so so let's get to this issue what should people do um (laughs) well it does seem to me that there's no really safe place to put your money probably the safest for ordinary people might be a credit union but even they use the big correspondent banks, which could have their money overnight when the big correspondent bank goes bankrupt. So that's why my push is for, I think we just have to take collective action. I mean, I'm hoping we can change things before before it all goes down. And so that, so our, I'm president of the Public Banking Institute, and what our proposed solution is, is public banks on that on the model of the Bank of North Dakota. The Bank of North Dakota has totally escaped the credit crisis and so have 40% of, 40% of banks globally are publicly owned, largely in the BRIC countries, and they all escaped Brazil, Russia, India, and China because they have a strong public banking sector. The Bank of North Dakota does not have FDIC insurance. It's self-insured by itself, by the government itself. And uh, so they're not, they, even if, they were only affected by a big bust in some other banks that required the member banks to kick in a lot of money. They wouldn't be affected because they're not members. They're not members of the of the of the FDIC. FDIC. Yeah. Uh, and so, but so they are dependent. That bank would be dependent on uh, on the credit worthiness, though, of uh, of North Dakota. I would guess that is North Dakota would have it collects taxes. Right. 
Right, so but the, first of all, the depositors are, I mean, 98% of the deposit base is the state itself. So mm-hmm. they don't have to worry about paying back their depositors. And they're just, they don't do derivatives, so there's no way that they're going to get into that kind of trouble. So mm-hmm. you could only, the only way they could catch it would be a contagion, you know, it, yeah. getting the infection. But they're not going to get the infection either because they're not even hooked into the FDIC. Yeah, and, and they of course, support their local banks. I'm so sorry, Ellen, you said what? A, they support their local banks. They don't have uh. a big uh, Wall Street presence at all. That was the whole point of the Bank of North Dakota in 1919, was to make North Dakota self-sufficient, independent of Wall Street, which was bankrupting their farmers. So it's 1919, and do you know who are they making their loans to? Farmers? They have some oil and gas industry there. They have, what, construction? What, what would their loan portfolio look like? Do you have any sense of that? Well, their loan, they, what they do is they partner with the local banks. So it's actually mm-hmm. the local bank that, that makes the original loan. I and see. And then the Bank of North Dakota steps in and buys it down, buys down the, the uh, interest rate and uh, shares in that, or they guarantee the capital, so so they just share in the loan, but yet they do favor, um, they have special programs for, like, startup farmers get 1% loans from the Bank of North Dakota, and they used to, um, they, they had the first and the strongest uh, student loan program in the country, but then when, now, the, now, of course, the federal government has taken that over, but they still have a strong student loan program of their own. And um, I think alternative energy is one of their favorite projects, and they mm-hmm. they do things like they they fund highways and hotels and all that. So they have been good for all the infrastructure development, but they don't specifically, you know, they're not a development bank. They 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 make it very clear. They say we are not a development bank. Um, we are we do regular banking, we do prudent banking, but they do have a mandate to serve the public, and they. They are all on salaries, very modest salaries, actually. You know, no bonuses, mm-hmm. commissions, no derivatives. They just don't gamble. Uh, they could. The, I saw an interview of the president. He said, "Well, we could do derivatives." He said, "But our theory is, if we don't understand it, we don't do it." <laughs> That's well. I might just add that um, uh, that you know, I've taken a look at the financials. It, it seems like a very well-run bank. It's got its capital. Uh, its capital requirements are way above what is required. Uh, they've earned a, a good return on equity. Uh, their loan, their non-performing loans are very low relative to everything else that I've seen in recent years. And uh, I, it really is a very appealing story, I think, uh, from my point of view. Ellen, do you know, can people outside of North Dakota deposit money there, or is it just for people if you live in North Dakota? Well, what you can do is you can buy CDs. I'm not sure what the interest rate is, but they say they they pay an, a competitive interest rate, so I'm sure it's as mm-hmm. good as anywhere else. You wouldn't what? really want to do your banking there because they only have one branch. They don't have ATMs, so it's not right. real convenient unless you live in Bismarck. Um, but you could buy CDs. Well, but that's the Bank of North really Dakota. People might want to check it out, given the situation that we find ourselves in today. Ellen, we only have about a minute left, and I want you to tell our listeners where they can go to follow your work. You, uh, as you mentioned, are uh, are ahead of the, uh, was it the Public Banking Institute? What What is it called? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is the website? Non-volunteer <laughs> what organization. Publicbankinginstitute.org is that website. And then my website is webofdebt.com, and I have over 200 articles on this subject that I've written on there. 
and the book is is really very very worthwhile reading. People should consider buying a copy of the book. Can they get the book from your website or they through the yeah, regular uh-huh, bookstores also? Yeah, web at that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is it is an it is an excellent uh, a book. And Ellen, I want to thank you so much uh, for your your conscientious work here. I think you're doing I think you're doing a very good work. Uh, I would say I think you're closer to doing God's work than that guy. Uh, at Goldman Sachs, who said that that's what he's all about, doing God's work. Well, as I look at what you're doing here, it seems to me a kinder, gentler banking system uh, that really does work for the people of North Dakota, and uh, hopefully it's a model that other localities can pick up on as well. Thank you very much, Ellen, for well, being with I us once again. I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Well, folks, don't go away. After the break, we're going to come back with Alastair McLeod. Uh, of goldmoney.com. And Alistair is going to talk to us about why he thinks the gold markets uh, may very well be on the verge of an explosive breakout. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Nevada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Alistair McLeod. Uh, Alistair, well, we've read his, his uh, bio here before. You can find it uh, at, uh, at the Voice America business channel on, uh, on our particular page there. Uh, so we only have a few minutes, so I don't want to, if I could just not babble so much, my wife says, shut up and say, welcome, Alistair, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hello, Jay. Really good to have you. You're talking to me from London, England tonight, I guess, or from England somewhere at least. And, somewhere uh, in England, yes. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in England. Uh, 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 and so um, 
we want to talk to you about physical gold versus paper. You just wrote a you wrote an article, physical gold versus paper gold, waiting for the dam to break. Um, there's a difference between how Western investors view gold and how the rest of the world views gold that is at the heart of a major tension in the gold markets. Can you talk to us a little about that, the difference between how we, most of us in the West, view gold and how people elsewhere, say in the eastern part of the world, view gold that is causing this disparity? Yeah. Yes, I think, I mean, that, that, is, that is the key point, Jay. Um, I mean, we've had years of uh, neoclassical uh, economics, uh, which I guess you're no fan of, <laughs> no. Uh, which has which has uh, persuaded everybody that you know gold is um, is a bit of a curiosity, and gold bugs are um, raving lunatics at one one extreme or the other extreme, quite harmless. Um, but uh, you know, we in in Europe and America, we're only what 600 million people. I mean, the rest of the world still actually thinks that real money is gold, and the paper stuff that governments print is hardly even an imitation. It's useful for transactions. But if you're going to have a store of value, then you have gold. And um, th it's that that is actually driving the market. And I think that is the key point. And we forget this. We think that, um, you know, with all our wonderful civilization and, um, you know, I'm, I'm in England and you're in America and I think what the world sort of ends at the Channel and you probably think the world ends at the Pacific and the Atlantic. Um, you know, actually, it's a far bigger place and there are other people making the price. So you've got this sort of dichotomy, as it were. We value it one way. And particularly the Asian bloc, which is where all the money is now, they're valuing it a different way. And that is creating the tension in the market. Well, Volcker killed the gold markets in 1980. I'm an old enough guy to remember that. It was painful for me. I was thinking we were moving higher. I was caught on the wrong side of, of gold when this thing turned around. Volcker did something that I, I think would not be possible to do right now. He uh, tightened the money supply, the growth of money at least at a time when the economy was becoming much more addicted to uh, to credit and more and more of it. Uh, and then we had, uh, you know, double-digit interest rates. My first mortgage was a 17.5% mortgage. The treasuries were draw, you know, were giving huge returns in treasury. There was really a good reason then to sell your gold and buy dollars, was there not? And uh, how has that changed, though, since then, Alistair? It seems to me that most people still think that way. Most people in America still think it makes more sense to hold dollars than gold. Yes, um, uh, that experience under the Volcker regime um, is interesting because I think even if interest rates in America rose to 5%, the banks would all go bust and government would be able to find itself, yeah. fi finance itself. So it's not an option, Jay. Um, mm. And the same is true of every country, uh, you know, with a, with a sort of a fiat currency. It's true in the UK, it's true in Europe, it's true in Japan. And in Japan, actually, they're, they're disappearing into the black hole there. Uh, because they're having to print money in order to finance themselves. Um, they can't even finance themselves by going to the central bank and saying, issue some bonds um, and, uh, you know, we can then spend the proceeds and maybe help the process a little bit by keeping interest rates low. They can't even do that. They're now in the, in, in, it, they're now in the end game of the whole of the monetary collapse. They are printing money purely to pay bills. Now, we're doing that as well, but perhaps slightly less, um, obviously, and, uh, you know, perhaps slightly less aggressively. But, in, it, you know, the, the, it's the whole thing, the, the systemic risk uh, now is so great, and they cannot raise interest rates because it would just collapse everything. 
we had uh, we had a guest on the first hour of this show that said that we are now uh, that the Fed is buying 62 percent of newly issued U.S. Treasuries. Uh, are, are the are the Japanese buying more than that? Um, well, the Japanese now have a policy of just printing money, full stop. I mean, they they dress it up and saying that they're trying to prevent deflation. But actually, if you really think through their motivation, it's because the government needs the money. They have already got a quadrillion of government debt, quadrillion in yen. I mean, that that is, uh, you know, if you have a stack of yen notes, I mean, that goes to the moon and back and back again, for all I know. It is a massive number. Um, and so, I mean, basically, uh, they can't do anything else but just print, print, print in order to pay the bills. And that's what they're doing. This would seem to uh, would would almost seem like it has to result in some sort of an inflationary problem down the road if if it isn't already. What's your thought on that? Yes, that's that's right. I mean, you, what, th- there isn't a direct connection between the, the uh, expansion of the quantity of money and um, and prices. Uh, the money has to go into the economy, and the point where it goes into the economy. Uh, that is where it will start driving up the prices. It is, in effect, a transfer of wealth um, from savers mainly and also yeah. wage earners uh, to the lucky bankers who are given the money uh, to spend in the first instance. And that's why prices in places like New York and London are so much higher than they are, um, you know, sort of 50, 70 miles away from those centers. Um, it, that, it's the money going into the economy that does it. Now, it takes a bit of time to do that, but when it gets, starts going in, I, it, you, you can't stop it. And um, you'll find, the Fed will find, that uh, prices start going out of control and trying to sort of remove food and energy because they're so volatile, um, you know, is, is going to be the biggest joke, I think, of, um, of the coming year. Well, Alistair, you're in England. I'm here in in New York, and uh, the federal government tells us my inflation rate is 1.7 percent a year. Uh, Mrs. Taylor and I, we pay for our insurance, our health insurance. We pay for our food. We pay for our, uh, you know, we pay for our our car, our energy, our heating our home, our cooling it in the summer. Uh, there's no way on God's little green earth that we see inflation at 1.7. If you define inflation as the cost of staying alive from one year to the next. What what is your experience in in England? Exactly the same as yours, Jay. And no. uh, I would I, I would venture to suggest that anywhere in the world it is exactly the same. Food prices have gone up, energy prices have gone up. Um, I mean, even if we stay at home and we don't spend anything, we've got to spend money on that. Right. And it's hitting it's hitting the elderly in particular. Um, I know you're not there yet, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's. I mean, if you think about the elderly who've stopped uh, earning and they're now living off their savings uh, around the world, they're having great difficulties. And I think that's a great that that, that to me is very sad. And it's a, they have been abandoned by governments through government and monetary policies. We're in the process of destroying capitalism from the inside out, according to David Stockman, who commented on Bernanke's endless QEs uh, the day after that announcement was made here. And uh, David was talking here in New York at a at a Mises gathering. And it seems to me that somebody said that uh, 80% of the savings in the United States is held by people who are 55 years of age and older. Uh, that is a tragedy, it seems to me. But let's get into this gold issue that you're talking about. You said there comes a point in time when prices spin out of control. This is, seems to be this seems to be what you're talking about here: physical gold uh, versus paper gold. You believe that we're going to see 
uh, a massive breakout here sometime soon in the gold price, I gather, in reading your, uh, your missive. Why do you say that? Yeah, uh, well, it's really sort of continuing the theme, if you like, of the higher value placed on gold by people in the East compared with us, us um, dopey people in the West. Um, <laughs> it, it basically means that, that, that gold is being transferred from the West to the East because of this, the pricing mismatch, if you like, in, 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 in a general sense. Now, there comes a point where there's no bullion left, and uh, we know that the London bullion market in London is fractionally reserved, geared, if you like. I don't know how many times because there are no statistics. It's an over-the-counter market. But it could easily be that um, the banks there are something like 25 to 30 times geared on uh, the physical that they actually own. Um, you've then got uh, COMEX, where they're short positions. Um, and, uh, the, of course, traditionally what happens is that the central banks bail out the bullion banks. Now, they've been doing this for quite some time, and one wonders how much bullion the central banks actually have left. One wonders about the gearing of uh, the bullion banks themselves, and you sort of think, well, and all this bullion has actually disappeared off into Asia. How much is there left? The market is essentially becoming incredibly geared, because the gold that we have in the West as individuals tends to be in jewelry and coins. It's mm -hmm. not in bars and things like that. I mean, you can't get your friendly banker to come around and bid you for it. It no. doesn't work like that. It's not accessible to the market. So um, I can see a crunch coming for the market. And uh, silver also has a crunch coming for slightly different reasons. Uh, if we just stick to gold, though, I have no doubt that it's only a matter of time when this crunch comes. And I think the experience of the knockdown in earlier this month um, was really instructive in this case because instead of shaking out stock, well, it shook out a few holders of GLD, I suppose, um, and a few people like that. It shook out investors who don't understand. They bought gold to make a profit. In other words, they've got dollars. They want to make more dollars. What mm -hmm. we're talking about is people who don't want dollars. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, exactly. they, want, they want gold. They're not looking for gold to go up, but they actually think there's a big risk the dollar is going to go down. Right. Now, what happened on the knockdown was all these physical buyers came in and they cleaned out the market, and they're still trying to clean out the market. In other words, if the knockdown was designed to try and shake stock out, and there's a lot of evidence that this may be the case, mm -hmm. then it has completely failed. And this is interesting because I think this is the first time we've seen something on quite the scale of failure in the bullion markets. Well, as you say, it probably did shake some out of GLD, right? GLD, to the extent that GLD actually backs uh, its shares with gold, and that's another question, I guess. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but uh, it, it would have shaken some out. Certainly people in the West, the investors, as you say, little people, uh, that might be trying to make ends meet or trying to uh, to to build a little bigger nest egg for their retirement or something. Where, as you say, though, not buying gold to hold gold as a currency, but buying it to speculate essentially or to try to to make more dollars. Uh, those people were shaken out, but then what has happened um, is that um, is that that makes it easier for the people that understand gold as uh, hoarders, people that, uh, that want to own gold not to make a profit but to own it because it's sheer wealth, it's pure wealth. It's a hedge against um, having your assets in a bank, having your assets in paper money. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are enough people in the West who, you know, they don't necessarily understand neoclassical economics. Thank mm-hmm. goodness for them. But <laughs> they do understand that there are huge risks out there and they understand perhaps as businessmen that their banks are no longer sound. They can see the situation which government has got itself in. And they think, hold on a minute, this paper currency could well go down. It could well go down to nothing. What happens then? I would be a bit of a bozo if I didn't have any gold. And so, uh, you know, I mean, uh, it's quite extraordinary that you lower the price. Any economist will tell you if you lower the price, you increase the demand. Well, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) So, you know, it's only investors who sort of think, well, if the price of a stock goes down, then there must be something wrong with it. So I better sell. You know, uh, we're talking about, um, you know, the investors are the upside down people. The people who have actually got their feet on the ground are the people who are trying to get that protection. And the other point to, to bear in mind, Jay, is we're not just talking about a market of 2,700 tons of production, another 1,200 tons of scrap coming in. We are talking about a market of 160,000 tons. And it is that being mobilized on the price knock. And that is why the demand is so, so great. It's mm. overwhelmed. It's overwhelmed the Western system. Hmm. Well, so what about the bullion banks? Uh, were they have they not reduced their short positions now with this decline? Yes, yes, they have, and that's a very good point because you may ask. I mean, the bullion banks basically run the market as mm-hmm. um, as the paper as market. Aware. The paper market, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and they control the prices in the paper market. Um, now they have been closing down their positions, so you have to ask yourself why are they doing this, um, and. Uh, uh, basically, I mean, we don't know, but uh, it's a pretty good guess that they see risk in having short positions or short positions that they can't close. Mm-hmm. And they really have tra- tried very hard to close down positions. And I'm sure that triggering all the stop losses in the market and all the rest of it is all part of that. And if you look at the managed funds, the, the uh, short positions of the managed funds are historically off the chart. They mm-hmm. were short going into this. And uh, they've become even more short in, in, in gold. In silver, they closed some of the short positions, but basically it's still very, very short. Uh, geez, there's, there seems to be so much more to talk about. But the Cyprus bail-in seemed to me that should have been a trigger that would have sent people out of their bank accounts into gold. Uh, it doesn't seem to have happened very much yet. Uh, in fact, it seemed like that was an excuse for people to sell gold, maybe the the, tr- the investors here in the states in the west uh, but uh, we are just about just about out of time. What do you think the the timing of this is? I can tell you this uh, Alistair uh, one person that i 've connected with here, Charles Nanner, an ex goldman Sachs uh, quant um, a brilliant investor uh, who uh, who i 'm finding to be extraordinarily good with his timing is suggesting a time period of about June when he thinks uh, that it's probably time to get more aggressive on gold. Any well, thoughts? Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's right. I wouldn't be surprised if we've already seen the bottom. I mean, you're right to refer to Cyprus. The thing about triggers is that they don't necessarily, I mean, it's not like firing a, uh, you know, a, a rifle. You pull the trigger and bang, you know, a yeah. financial trigger. You pull, you pull the trigger and you wait and you get bored and then it goes bang. And I think that's probably the situation with Cyprus. Do bear in mind that uh, this is actually um, the first emergence of 
a G20 plan to ensure that governments uh, or taxpayers, as they will put it, do not bear the burden of rescuing the banks. They yeah. are going to raid the deposits. And this is in all the G20 countries where there's a bank failure. They will raid the deposits of the what they call the uninsured deposits. Now, they haven't said anything in the um, the documentation that was presented to the G20 at Cannes um, that was drawn up by the Bank of International Settlements. They haven't said anything about uh, the interbank loans, but you can bet your bottom dollar that those will be left intact. In other words, if you have a deposit of more than 100,000 euros, 85,000 pounds or whatever it is in, in America, I think it's now a quarter of a million dollars, um, which is not insured, I mean, that's assuming the insurance can be paid, which is not a question. Uh, then, um, you know, uh, above that level, you are at risk. And All right, we're, uh, we're going this, this we're is, going to have this to leave, is a serious problem. Yeah. Oh, we're going to have to leave it go at that, Alistair. You're really reflecting a lot of what Ellen Brown just said. Thank you very much. We're out of time. Uh, always a pleasure to have you with us. And it's uh, people can track you through goldmoney.com, can they not? Absolutely, yeah. That's the best site to find me on, Jay. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent articles that Alistair writes. So, folks, check them out at goldmoney.com. Folks, I'll be right back after the commercial break with some closing thoughts about today's show and next week's guest. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico, backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet. An experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ranked gold mining region. Sandgold's most recent gold discovery, the Shoreline Basalt Mining Unit, is already in production at more than 75,000 ounces per year. And Sandgold continues to pursue nearby targets within one of Manitoba's most prospective gold mining trends, the Rice Lake Gold Belt. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol is SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www.sandgold.ca. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, well, we've uh, certainly did uh, get some warnings today about the problems that are that we're facing in the financial community. Certainly, uh, Todd uh, Todd Walker uh, was very, very good. I think um, uh, I think his uh, his warnings his actually the uh, the novel that he's written, Todd Wood, I should say. I'm sorry, Todd. Todd Wood uh, talked about his his novel, Currency, and and subsequently uh, to our discussion, um, because it was a pre-recorded discussion. I have read that novel, and we're going to have Todd on back. Uh, he's going to be with us next week again to talk more about that and how it connects with where we are today in the markets today. Also, the whole uh, article, the whole notion he wants to talk about is whether or not too big to fail banks um, are really taking over. And this is an issue, of course, that uh, we touched on with Ellen Brown a little earlier today, the notion that the taxpayers uh, will not be asked to bail out banks means that uh, essentially the banks are going to take the property that they have that you and I think are is ours but it's not really when you put a deposit in the bank it's not really it's not really your property uh it's hard for people to really realize they don't realize it most people don't understand that legally it's just like when you put when you own shares of stock that's in the bank uh, in your broker's name it's actually the property of the broker the same thing holds true with your deposits and so as Alistair was explaining the G20 countries and that would include us it would include Canada it would include well all the G20 the major countries the western countries around the world are planning to essentially rob the depositors of what they think is theirs. Why should you keep money in a bank? Uh, why should you keep money in a bank any more than you have to to make your transactions? That's a good question, and I do think it might be well uh, might be worth your uh, your time to take a look at the Bank of North Dakota as a possible uh, alternative, not as a bank to do transactions, as Ellen Brown explained, but probably as a place where you could buy so could park some wealth in in the form of TDs. Do your homework first, study uh, the the bank, and make sure you're comfortable with it. But it seems to me. Uh, probably a better bet at this point in time than uh, holding, uh, keeping your money in, in regular accounts like we have. Alistair was brilliant, as always. I think the case for gold and being bullish on gold, I'm looking at the junior gold sector now. I think uh, we could be ready for a very big breakout in the gold price and in the gold shares. It's been a very painful experience over the last year and a half or so, but I think we're very close to a turnaround. Our sponsors, our good candidates, and many others that I cover in my newsletter every week are very, uh, very attractive, I think, right now. It doesn't feel like it when you look at the market, but intellectually, I believe that we're very close to a turning point. Charles Nanner suggests probably somewhere around mid-June. Well, next week, uh, as I mentioned, Todd Wood will be back with us, and also we're going to have Bill Murphy and Chris Powell. They'll be here to talk about how the bullion banks are trying to fake you out of gold, essentially, so I believe uh, to pick your pockets and to make sure that they get some cheap gold. Uh, we're going to have David Gerwitz, possibly Charles Nanner, but I think he may not be available. David Gerwitz will be with us as well uh, next week to talk about the gold market and various other things. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening. Uh, in closing, I do want to thank Tacey Trump and Matt Widener for making this show logistically possible. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.